Great. Um, so I'd like to begin by welcoming everyone to today's class. We are lucky to have Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein here this afternoon for part two of the Emotions of Teshuva. Um, Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein received rabbinic ordination from Reitz and a PhD in Talmudic studies from Bernard Rivel Graduate School of Jewish Studies with a focus on Midrash Halakha. He currently teaches Jewish philosophy and halakha at Michelet Mevaseret Yerushalayim, also known as MMY, and online for Yeshiva University's Isaac Breuer College. He has two books that are forthcoming, Engaging the Essence, The Philosophy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe from Magid Books, and Reshimot Shirim Shel Maran Harav Yosef Dov Slovechek Al Masechet Kiddushin. Thank you again to Rabbi Dr. Bronstein for joining us today, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Sarah. I, I really, really appreciate the organization and the instruction. And thank you, everybody, for, 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 coming, for coming back for, for part two. Um, so, so, um, so feel free to chime in at various points if you have questions or comments, especially because it's there, I think there, it's a more intimate crowd this time. So definitely feel free to, to chime in. Um, so last week, um, we discussed, oh, thank you. The, the handout is, on, is, on, is up in the chat. Um, last week, we discussed a traditional approach to the emotions of tshuva. Again, not the technical aspects of how to do tshuva, but the emotional associations of tshuva. And we focused on the writings of Rabbeinu Yona, the author of Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, and some of the more modern inheritors of this approach, um, which, are, which, which, were the, which, which were the Muslim movement. And we saw that they described tshuva as a process that's filled with agony, with misery, with pain, with distress, with anxiety. Those are all direct terms that, that, that come from their books. And we saw what type of texture life during the month of Elul therefore has in yeshivot, in midrashot, in places of learning where these tenets are followed. And we also discussed towards the end how 20th century mental health issues, 20th, 20th century ideologies about life um, may not necessarily jive 100% with the emotions, with the texture of life that those, that those books describe. And what we're going to do the next, over the course of the next three Sundays is look at three of the great thinkers of Jewish philosophy in the 20th century, of Slovakia, Rav Kook, and the Baba Trevi. And each week we'll see how a different figure um, was highly cognizant of this approach to tshuva, the traditional approach to tshuva, partially embraced certain elements of it, but also moved on, also ruptured from it in a, in a certain way in order to speak to their constituents. Um, before we look at before we look at Rosalvechek, who's going to be who's going to be the figure we're discussing this week, just a word as to why we're focusing on these three figures: Rosalvechek, Graf Kook, and Lubavitch Rebbe as opposed to many other great 20th century figures who also did similar things in terms of trying to keep the tradition alive, but, but modify it a little bit. There are people, there, there are people like, like Rabbi Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel. There are, there are people like Rabbi Dr. Eliezer Berkowitz. There are people on the more Haredi side, like Rav Hunter, Rav Dessler, who were really innovative in the tradition um, in, uh, in, in the 20th century, which is a time of crazy flux, a, a, time, of, a, 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 time, a time of a lot of tumultuousness. And therefore, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish thought leaders, really had to look into tradition and see what to keep and see what to modify. So why these three? And the answer, I'll write the on one foot, just, just very quickly, if, if I think, um, and I could be wrong on this, so feel, feel, feel free to, to contact me afterwards if or during, if you, if you want to challenge me on this. And these, these are the three figures who grew up in Eastern Europe. They grew up in rabbinic homes in the Alterheim, in the old tradition. Um, and they managed to build up Torah-ni communities. They managed to build up Torah communities on new shores that were, that were cognizant, that were, on the one hand, strong in terms of Torah, strong in terms of observance, but on the other hand, um, consciously non-carbon copies of the communities in which they grew up. And there was a conscious choice on their part. People like Ruth Hutner or Rav Dessler, Ruth Hutner, who was, who was, who was, who was a head of a, head of a yeshiva in, in Borough Park, um, in Brooklyn, sorry, in Flatbush, and Rav Dessler a little bit, who was a, who was a mashkiach, who was a spiritual head of a yeshiva in Bnei Brak, they were very innovative, but the community they left behind was basically a traditional yeshiva community. People like Rabbi Dr. People, people like Rabbi Dr. Elizabeth Berkowitz or Heschel, they were also extremely, extremely innovative, and there's a lot to learn from their writings, but the, there wasn't as much of a cohesive community that, that, um, that, that they galvanized around them. These three people, Rav Kook, Rav Slavichik, and Baba Rebbe, were successful in bridging the gap, 
and creating a community in the sense that there are people on the ground that take these ideas that we're going to be studying and really try to build a life around them. So again, if you think that's true, it's great. If you think it's not true, feel free to, feel free to challenge me with other figures afterwards. But, um, but hopefully in the 21st century, there'll be, there'll be other figures. I think Tamara Ross, Dr. Tamara Ross is phenomenal. She has a lot to say about topics like this. Um, but for, for the 20th century, I think that these are, these are three very interesting figures to study. So first, Rav Slavichek. Rav Slavichek was born in 1903 in a small, a small Eastern European town. Um, he was born in, a, in as, as many people know, I'm sure, into the, the Slavichek dynasty. He was born into the Rabbinic dynasty. He was known as a prod, prod, prodigy from a very young age. His childhood education was entirely the Mara Rambam Halacha. Um, when he was in high school, the equivalent thereof, he started stealing books um, you know, from his parents from the local secular library. Um, eventually, he made his way to college, eventually got a, got a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Berlin, um, immigrated to America in the 1930s, and eventually became the Rosh HaYeshiva at Yeshiva University and holding other, holding other very important communal positions. He ordained more rabbis than anybody else, any known figure in Jewish history. Um, Jonathan Cerno, the great, the, the great historian of American, of American Jewish history, if I recall correctly, the exact quote is, it's hard to overestimate the effect, the impact Rav Soloveitchik had on the Orthodox community in America. So, and obviously the Orthodox community also impacts the conservative reform and other, and, and, and other denominations. So, so the first thing to note, that when, when we're talking about Oslovechik and Shuva, and we're coming off of last week's talk about suffering and sacrifice and anxiety and anguish, is that those things really play directly into Oslovechik's talk. We're going to have two introductions to Oslovechik. The first one is, about, is exactly this, that the fact that, that, that tshuva is described as a very painful process is exactly up Rav Soloveitchik's alley, despite the fact, as we'll see, he's a 20th century figure in certain ways. Um, there are just two sources as, as, by, by means of introduction before we look at the two more focused pieces on tshuva itself. Um, this, the one that Soloveitchik wrote was Halachic Man. He wrote it in 1944. It's a phenomenological work, meaning he just tries to describe the way a Halachic Man views the world. So most of the book does that. In four, he goes off on a random tangent, it's not random, but a very long tangent about the religious experience. And you, you see that he's been in America for 10 years already, a little bit over 10 years. He knows the American community. There's parts of it that really, really bothers him. So let's read it together. Source number one, Halakhic Man footnote four. This popular ideology contends that the religious experience is tranquil and neatly ordered, tender and delicate. It is an enchanted stream for embittered souls and still waters for troubled spirits. The person who comes in from the field weary, that's a, that's a quote about Esau, from the battlefield and campaigns of life, from the secular domains which is filled with doubts and fear, contradictions and refutations, clings to religion as does a baby to its mother and finds in her lap a shelter for his head, a nest for his forsaken prayers. People think, this is what is claiming, that the outside world is so crazy, it's so filled with suffering, trials and tribulations and, and struggles, and they go to shul, they go to temple, they, they, they enter whatever religious sphere they enter, and it's calm, it's peaceful, it's serene, it's therapeutic. Rosovichik argues that is exactly not the case. Religion is not, next paragraph, underlined part, at, at the outset, a refuge of grace and mercy for the despondent and desperate, an enchanted stream for crushed spirits, but a raging, clamorous torrent of man's consciousness, all its crises, gangs, and torments. Yes, it is true that during the third Sabbath meal at dusk, as a day of rest declined, and man's soul yearns for his creator, and is afraid to depart from the realm of holiness, whose name is the Sabbath, etc., etc., yes, there are there are points where we refer to God as our shepherd, and God takes care of us, and he comforts us, and Shul does that for us. But at the same time, at the outset, the actual process of religion, you're trying to figure yourself out, you're actually observing the laws from salvation that is the bread and butter. When you're actually studying a text of Torah, it's not a refuge of grace and mercy, it's the exact opposite. It's a raging, clamorous Torah, the man's consciousness. Look at the, look at the, up the next page, page two. This is, this is the end of the footnotes. For the path that will eventually will lead to the green pastures and to the still waters is not the royal road, but a narrow, twisting footway that threads its course along the steep mountain slope as a terrible abyss yawns at the traveler's feet. Out of the straits of inner oppositions and incongruities, spiritual doubts and uncertainties, out of the depths of a psyche rent with antinomies and contradictions, 
and the bottomless pit of the soul that struggles with its own torments, I have called, I have called unto thee, O Lord. Religion is not there to help you um, solve your problems in the outside world. As we're going to see in the next quote, when God calls you, God is completely outside of this world. He's overbearing, overwhelming. He will force you to think about things that you don't want to think about. He will force you to do things that you don't want to do. And it's going to be extremely, extremely uncomfortable. And at the outset, religion, therefore, is suffering. It's hard. It's anxiety-fueled. It's anguish-fueled. There are these high points of spiritual ecstasy. Well, again, Rav Soledger spends a lot of time in his, in his essays describing why keep it, why do it, if it's so difficult and it's so hard. What compels religious people to be religious? The lonely man of faith, the guy is so lonely, is standing in opposition to the entirety of the rest of society. What drives that person to stand in opposition to the rest of society and remain firm and religious? That's Rav Soledger describes that type of person in the end of lonely man of faith. Um, but yeah, but it, the rest of religion is not something that is nice and kind and gentle always for our Soviet um, If you want to see, or you want to see one more quote where, the, where this comes up, um, this, this quote um, where our Soviet son-in-law, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Luchensin, in one of his essays, pointed out as being a seminal, central quote of a central theme in, in our Soviet thought. Um, this is source number two. For the love of Torah and redemption of the generation soul. This was a Hebrew essay. It wasn't really an essay. Basically, um, Eli Wiesel, when he was a journalist, interviewed Rav Soloveitchik, and this was, I think, in the 1960s, if I'm correctly. I'm, it could, it could be, I'm, mixing, I'm mixing up the years. I'm in quarantine now, so I don't have, I don't have access to a, lot of, to a lot of these books. Um, I have some of the quotes I have, a lot of the books I don't have. Um, so Eli Wiesel wrote up an article, interviewed Rav Soloveitchik about educational philosophy, and he wrote up an article in a, in a, in a newspaper uh, describing Rav Soloveitchik's thought. Somebody whom who Rav Soloveitchik knew, I mean, somebody who knew Rav Soloveitchik living in Israel, wrote Rav Soloveitchik a letter asking him, did you really say these things? And Rav Soloveitchik was like, actually not. Actually, he made some mistakes, or all journalists make mistakes. They all, they all, slice, they all slice, and, slice and slice quotes. Um, it's nothing wrong with him. He only had a certain amount of space. My idea is that our conversation was hours long and he only had one article to write it up in. But here is actually what I told him. Um, and it's actually a fascinating, fascinating read. It's on, unfortunately, it's, it's only in Hebrew. Um, it has not yet, yet, not yet been translated to English. It's a fascinating read about Rav Soloveitchik's perspective on religious education in America, if I recall correctly, in the 1960s, where he thinks, where he thinks it's, they're doing great where he thinks there is room for improvement. Um, so this is what he writes, that's relevant for our part. It says, even though I've been a citizen of America for many years, from source number two, I have still not yet developed for myself the pragmatic outlook towards religion. In my opinion, faith does not come to serve the needs of man. I never attempted to explain the Torah of Israel and the categories of mental health and peace of mind and similar things. Even though this approach is popular today, also amongst Jewish thinkers, observant and unobservant. My soul is repulsed by all the homilies that revolve around a single topic. Observance of mitzvot is good for one's digestion, for serene sleep, for peace in the family, and for social standing. Like many, this is very popular today. Read anything by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I mean, maybe I shouldn't mention names. It's all about if you want to have a stable, um, a stable psycho-emotional life. If you want to have a stable family life, stable community life, a stable international international scene, you have to follow the basic values that Torah espouses. For a Soloveitchik, that might be true, it may not be true, but it's irrespective of the main point. The main point is that it is not what God is after. Next paragraph. The religious act is at its core an experience of suffering. You know, Soloveitchik is a little bit humble. He is also, in addition to being a philosopher, he's also a public, public figure. So a lot of things are, are hyperbolic in this thought. I think uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Gil's student, and, uh, who runs a blog called Torah Musings, recently collected several statements from Salvation where it says, this is the way things are. And it's very clearly not true. And it's very clearly contradicted by other statements of Salvation meant. And he's speaking, speaking hyperbolically, but he's a, he's a public figure, for better or for worse. But the religious act is at its core an experience of suffering. When man meets with God in one's room, he's claimed by God for self-sacrifice that is expressed through a fight with one's primitive desires, the breaking of his will, and the acceptance of the transcendental burden, and a giving up of an exaggerated desire for meat, with removing oneself at times from the pleasant and sweet and dedication to the bitter and strange when he clashes with the secular realm. And through his yearnings for a paradoxical world that is not understood by others, 
bring your sacrifice. That is the main commandment given to a religious person. It's pretty extreme. And this is coming from, from, a, from probably the single figure who was most familiar with the Jewish tradition and the secular philosophical traditions in the history of Judaism since the Rambam. And his, you know, his way of viewing it wasn't through harmony, wasn't, it wasn't to harmonize things, wasn't to synthesize things, wasn't to bring everything together in some nice, beautiful, nice, beautiful peaceful hall. It's to say, at times, secular society and Jewish society and the Torah are going to align. That's going to be great for you. You're going to be, and you're going to feel great about it. But very, very I don't know. He doesn't say very frequently, but at times you're going to diverge. And your psychologist might tell you one thing. Halakha might tell you something else. And the rest of your your friends in, the, in your business world might tell you one thing. And halakha or the Torah might tell you something else. And we have to choose. And so what he excelled at doing, unfortunately or unfortunately, was to point out these differences and describe them in all of their bitter struggle and, 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 um, and, and, uh, and suffering. Um, and Rabbi Sachs has a couple of reviews of Rabbi Salvatore's essays where he points this out. He says it's just ironic that the person who would have been the best synthesizer, and Rabbi Sachs is like, I can synthesize it, it all works, you just read my books. Um, Rabbi Salvatore took the opposite approach and highlighted the points of difference. Um, but, so that is point number one. And therefore, what we discussed at the end, the end of the last session, that happiness may not be the ultimate goal of the Torah. Um, and therefore, the fact that the tshuva process is not a happy process, a joyful process, it is a process full of struggling and suffering, is something that for our salvation, as we're going to see, makes a lot of sense. Um, and any comments or questions up until now? Um, second point. A second introduction, before we get to two different pieces of Salvechik wrote about tshuva, is Rabbi Salvechik's methodology of how to do Jewish philosophy. And this raises something which you have to, understand, have to see in order to understand anything Rabbi Salvechik does in Jewish philosophy, if I understand correctly. And talking about Rabbi Sachs, um, here is a, a quote from, another quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Memories of a Giant. This, was a comp this is a, a book that somebody published, putting together different eulogies of Rabbi Salvechik after he passed away. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs at the time was the chief rabbi of England, and he offered a eulogy in a shul in London, I forgot what shul, um, about Rabbi Salvechik. He says he met, he met Rabbi Salvechik twice. The first time he met Rabbi Salvechik was when he was a graduate student. Um, he was a doctoral student of you know, general philosophy, I think it was in Cambridge or Oxford, I'm forgetting which one. If somebody knows, feel free to chime in. I think it was Cambridge. Um, and, he, and he went on a pilgrimage, basically, to America to meet great ra thinking rabbis to discuss his issues. Because he met a lot of people. Uh, over the course of a summer. The two that changed his life were Rabbi Salvechik, who taught him how to think, and Lubavitcher Rebbe, who taught him how to lead. Um, and Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs' first published book was actually a translation and summary of some of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's talks. That's awesome and an interesting thing. So Rabbi Sachs describes, he met, he met Rabbi Salvechik, and they were dis discussing issues of Jewish philosophy, how to do Jewish philosophy. And Rabbi Sachs describes, Rabbi Salvechik told him the following thing. Source number three. What he said was very simple and fundamental, yet it had never been said before. He said, in the past, Jewish philosophy, Machshavit Yisrael and Halacha, were two different things. They were disconnected. In truth, he said, there are only one thing, and that one thing is Halacha. The only way you can think Jewishly and construct a Jewish philosophy is out of the Halacha. This is a pretty, pretty extreme statement. If you ask, you know, if I ask the crowd, and I've done this in the past, what are the sources for Jewish philosophy? So Halacha is not usually on the list. There is Agatha, there are the stories, there are the narratives in Tanakh, there is rational thought. If you, if you read Rasadi, you go to the Rambam. There is revelation, there's mysticism, if you read the Zohar and the Kabbalists. Halakha doesn't factor so much in medieval Jewish philosophy. It's there, but it doesn't, it's not a major factor. And so Leishik thought that the fact that Halakha, the Jewish law, doesn't factor in centrally in the development of Jewish philosophy in the medieval time period was actually a major deficiency. And he has a book, The Halakhic Mind, where he describes why, why that happened and why today, in the 1940s, 1950s, we actually have the ability to free ourselves from this major problem and develop an entirely internal Jewish philosophy based on the details of halakha. We don't have time to go into it why, go into it now, but that is that was Rasulichus' approach. Therefore, any, almost and every philosophical essay you will read from our very Rabbi Salvechik, some of the sources will be the details of halacha, 
And you're building up from details of halakha, a conceptualization of that system, and then we'll see where the philosophy comes in. The Rabbi himself gave an example. He gave me one example, going back to the quote from Rabbi Sachs. He said, you have read Professor H.A. Heschel's book called The Sabbath. I said, yes. He said, it's a beautiful book, isn't it? I said, yes. And he said, what does he call the Shabbat? A sanctuary in time. This is an idea of a poet. It's a lovely idea. But what is Shabbat? Shabbat, he said, is Islam and Tzedakot. It is the 39 categories of work in their Toledot. And it is out of the halacha, not out of the poetry, you have to construct the theory of Shabbat. That was his example. So I don't know how many people here have, have, read, have read Professor Heschel's book, The Sabbath. It is a beautiful book. It's extremely inspirational. For me, growing up in the Arab Islamic system, when I finally when I read it, I was like, wow, there was a lot of spirituality, a lot of power to the concept of, the concept of Shabbos. For a Salvation, it's a lovely idea, it's inspirational, but it's not real hardcore Jewish philosophy. Why? Because Heschel doesn't start with Allah. Not only does he not start with Allah, he doesn't go through the details of Allah. The only way to know how to think Jewishly about a particular topic for every Salvation to start like a scientist starts, with the most objective data you could find. Scientists start with data, facts. Nowadays, I guess facts are, facts are being challenged. But ideally, scientists are supposed to start with facts and build up theories from the facts. What are the facts? What are the objective facts of the Jewish tradition? So we should argue that philosophy is ephemeral. Spirituality is ephemeral. Emotions are ephemeral. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They're swayed by culture, by person. What is the bread and butter? What is these things which are halakha, which halakha itself describes as nails, which are hammered into a wall? Halakha. Do this, do not do that. That is, that has to be the basis. Same way a philosopher of science starts off with the data, a philosopher of Allah, a philosopher of Judaism has to start off with the data points, which are the basic points of halakha. If you develop a philosophy outside of the system, lovely, inspirational, nice, you can inspire people. It is not actual, real, hardcore Jewish philosophy. So what, where does the philosophy come in? If all this is what we're doing one day, studying halakha, it's like, well, where can you, where can you develop you know, inspirational ideas? So what are you supposed to do? So we're not going to go through it in time now, but so it's just four and five, if you want to read them, and you want to, want to read the broader essays, I'll be, I'll be happy to, to, to send them out. Um, Rav Salvechik describes, the first thing you have to do, you want to study a topic, you want to study the topic of tshuva, you want to study the topic of shabbos, from a philosophically inspirational, whatever, whatever it is, just go through the halakhos. Once you have a good handball on the lachos, then you are allowed to ask the following question. Not, why did God give these lachos? That's asking, that's like a scientist asking, why did God create gravity? Irrelevant. We have no idea. Gravity is a given. Halakha is a given. Okay, this is Rav Salvechik. We see Rav Cook. We're going to see, we're going to see even the Orthodox community. A lot of people are going to be challenging this. But Rav Salvechik, halakha is a given. There's no reason to ask, why does halakha exist? What am I allowed to ask, though? And what, now that I know what the halacha is, and I've studied it, and I'm doing it, I'm practicing it, what meaning does it have for my spiritual connection to God? What meaning do I find in it for, for my connection to God? That, he says, is a legitimate pursuit. And that, Rav argues, is actually going to be different per person. The first, first level of studying Jewish philosophy is going to be the same. It's objective. It's universal. Study halakha. Figure out what the halakha system says about the topic. Then, I'm allowed to ask, now that I know what the 39 forbidden labors in Shabbos are, I can ask, what does this mean to me when I'm, not a, when I'm refraining from doing those things? Now that I know, as we're going to see in Shuva, what the Rambam says about the technical process of Shuva, I'm allowed to ask, what does that mean about the process, my experience of tshuva as I go through it? And for me, that's going to be different than Sarah, that's going to be different than Stacey, it's going to be different for everybody, but we're all going to be within a certain range because we're all anchored in the same exact basic sources. The same way there might be different theories in science, but they're all anchored in the same basic facts, the same data points. So I'm sorry if this is a very long introduction, but I feel like these are two very important things to, to know about our salvation before we get this piece about tshuva. Number one is that suffering is part and parcel of religion for him. Um, and number two is that you have to go through the halakhos. You have to give a Gemara shir, a Talmud shir, before you do philosophy. Okay. Any comments before we go on? Go back to Rabbi Talmud two Talmud shirim, two Talmud shirim, about tshuva, um, before, um, and to, to, in order to get to the experience and the emotions of tshuva. 
So far, so good. So as Rabbi Soloveitchik often started his Talmudic lectures, one of the most famous Talmudic lectures about tshuva starts with a contradiction in the Rambam. So you look at the source number six, source number seven, and we're going through a couple, a couple of statements of the Rambam in Hilchos Tshuva, um, in the laws of Tshuva. So the Rambam, before embarking in any of the books that he has and summarizing the relevant halachot, or relevant laws of that topic, he tells you how many mitzvos, how many of the 613 biblical mitzvos appear in this section, and what those mitzvos are. So let's read it inside together, source number six, Hilchot Tshuva. This is the Rambam's title, the introduction to the laws of Tshuva. Mitzvah ase achas. There is one single mitzvah. What is that mitzvah? She yashuv hashem. That the sinner has to repent before God. And confess. But, so the English translation is from the Chabad.org. They have an English translation of the entirety of Ramam. Um, but if you had to define the mitzvah, based on the Rambam's legal language over here. The mitzvah is to repent. to repent. And maybe a second element of the mitzvah is to confess. So no other, it's connected with, connected with repentance, but the main mitzvah is to repent. If you turn the page on the source packet, you sort of turn the page in the Rambam, you get to the Rambam's Hilchos Shuva, Tarek Aleph, Aleph, chapter one, law number one, Rambam's opening lines in this section of the book. And the Rambam, again, he tells you what the mitzvah of tshuva is. And he writes as follows. Call of mitzvah of the Torah, all of the commandments in the Torah, bein asei bein lotase, whether positive things you have to do or negative things you should not do, im avar adam achas man, if somebody violated any of them, bein bezadon, bein bishkaga, whether on purpose or by accident, when a person does teshuva, and he repents from his sin, he is obligated to confess, to verbally confess before God. He quotes, and the Ramam quotes a source, a proof text about confession. So I'm not, not obviously not, not calling up people in, in this setting, but the Rambam's language here is very starkly different than it is in his introduction. In the introduction, it's verse number six. The mitzvah is defined as doing tshuva. And also, the person has to confess. In Perak Aleph, Halacha Aleph, the Rambam actually writes out the laws of tshuva. What is the relationship between tshuva and vidoy, between repentance and verbal confession? Tshuva is sort of the context for the verbal confession. When a person repents and repents from this, their sin, then they are obligated to confess. So if you had a very strict read of this statement, and from a legal perspective, again, we're talking in very technical, very dry terms, and we'll build up from there. What is the definition of the mitzvah? Not to repent. Repentance, as we saw last week, is, you know, is, is stopping to sin and express and a feeling of regret and making a commitment to the future not to do it again. It's not, it's not the actual tshuva, chayof lehitzvadot. The actual obligation is to verbally confess, to state in front of God, I sinned in this, in this, in this way. What about tshuva? If you have a very strict read of this Rambam, the Rambam says, kishiyah tshuva, when a person does tshuva. Is a person obligated to do tshuva? Rambam never states so. There are mitzvahs that are contextual. There's a mitzvah to put up a mezuzah on a house. When you build a house, when you buy a house, there's a mitzvah to put up a mezuzah. Am I obligated to buy a house in order to put up a mezuzah? No. There's a mitzvah of Girushin. One of the Rambam's 613 mitzvahs is divorce. It doesn't mean there is a positive commandment to get divorced if somebody's married. It means there's a positive commandment that when a couple is getting divorced to do it in a certain way. So there are certain mitzvahs that are contextual. If you're doing this process, if you're doing this X, Y, and Z, the Torah tells you to do it in a certain way. So Rabbi Salvechik argued, and you said, you know, based on the language of this Rambam over here, it, maybe you would assume that that's true. When a person is doing tshuva, they are obligated to do it in a certain way, they're obligated to confess. But there's actually no, no mitzvah to do tshuva. Is that really true? There's no mitzvah to do tshuva. 
it's, it's, it sounds very strange. You're not obligated to repent for your sins if you sin. So as Alicia pointed out, there were some acronym, there were some 18th century commentators that said, yeah, that's exactly what the Rama means. There's actually, there's, there's absolutely no obligation. Tshuva is a privilege. Tshuva is an opportunity. Tshuva is not an obligation. If you're doing tshuva, it's hard tells you how to do it. But there's no obligation to do tshuva. It's an interesting thing to think about. So Alicia thought that that's not true. Based on the, the language of the Rambam in the Koteret, in source number six. So the mitzvah is There is a mitzvah to repent. But then how do we square the Rambam's language in the Koteret, the Rambam's language in the title and the instruction, to the Rambam's language in the actual laws, where he says the mitzvah is to do vidoy, the mitzvah is to verbally confess. So that was Rav Soloveitchik's opening question in this lecture that he gave about tshuva. Which was recorded in a book, Al Hachuva, um, by, by, by Pinchas Teli, who was an Israeli student of Rav Soloveitchik, who was we originally wrote up this lecture in Hebrew, and then later on it was translated to English. So I'm giving you from the English, English language. Um, the book is called, in English, it's called On Repentance, uh, Al Hachuva. So Rav Soloveitchik said, in order to understand this, we have to take a step back and think about mitzvahs more generally. That for people who are familiar with, with Talmudic parlance and Talmudic learning, the terms ma'aseh and kiyum might be, might be very familiar. Ma'aseh refers to an action that you have to do. Take a lulav, blow a shofar, etc., etc. Kiyum, does, it literally means fulfillment, doesn't refer to the action you have to do, but sometimes the Torah wants you to experience a certain thing I have a certain type of mindset, I have a certain experience, and that is actually where the mitzvah is fulfilled. So for most mitzvah, there's no distinction between the ma'aseh and the kiyom. The mitzvah of taking a lulav is to take a lulav, and that is the ma'aseh, that is the action I have to do. And the kiyom, the fulfillment of that, is inherent in my taking of the, in my taking of the lulav. But Rav Salvechik argued that in some mitzvah, there's actually a distinction. So let's talk about Avilut. This is one of his favorite topics. Why Avilut? Why mourning was one of his favorite topics? I don't know. Maybe it has to do with the suffering theme. But he loves talking about mourning. Um, it was like a disproportionate amount of writing he had about, about mitzvahs of mitzvahs that surround mourning and the themes of mourning. So he says, what, what are the ma'asei mitzvah of mourning? What does a mourner have to do? A mourner has to stand on the floor. A mourner should not leave their house so much. A mourner, I know nowadays we have a custom to, to cover the mirrors. In times, in times of the Talmud, they would cover their face, with, cover their face with a hat. A mourner is not supposed to speak about, you know, random, about, about, about random things. Not supposed to distract themselves from, from the morning. Not supposed to wash themselves. Not supposed to do laundry. So a whole litany of actions that a mourner has to do. But Rosh argued, and again, he tried to prove this from the Gemaras themselves, from the Talmudic passages, Let's say a person did all of those things. They stand on the floor, they covered their head, they covered their face with a, with a, with a large hat. They didn't wash themselves, they didn't shower for, for a week. Again, nowadays we do shower, most people do shower, but irrespective of that, in times to time they didn't. But they didn't feel sad. They felt happy. Whatever happened, you know, so they, they got a promotion. So they were feeling happy, they're happy that entire week, but they went through with all the actions and right. So Salvechik argued, who actually were not in fulfillment of the mitzvah. That over here, in terms of avilut, you could split between the ma'aseh, the actions that you're doing that are supposed to engender a certain feeling, and even purely on the technical halakhic level, if you don't experience that, you don't feel that at all, didn't fulfill the mitzvah. And he said the same thing is true with simchas yomtov, experiencing joy on a regal, experiencing joy, joy on a holiday. Nowadays, how do we experience joy? If you look in the Rambam, what does he say? says you eat good food, you hang out with people that you enjoy. That's what he says. He says you hang out with your family, hang out with your friends, you eat good food, and that is the way you experience joy. Let's say you're hanging out with your family and your friends, and people you enjoy, and you're eating good food, but you just lost your job and you feel horrible. Did you fulfill the mitzvah? Again, purely on a technical level, observation can argue the answer is no. You can read it in a slide for yourself. So you want to start number eight. So for certain mitzvah, there is a distinction between the ma'aseh and the kiyum, the Torah tells you to do certain actions that are supposed to express certain emotions, certain experiences, and if they don't express those experiences, you're actually not in fulfillment of the mitzvah. I can be happy or sad when I shake the lulav, either way I fulfill the mitzvah. If I'm happy when I'm sitting shiva, or I'm sad when I'm sitting at a Yom Tov meal, I actually did not fulfill the mitzvah, according to Absalom just purely te technical read of the Talmudic passages. 
um, you can read that inside, inside, inside for yourself if you want, it's verse number eight. Uh, up to the next page, you have a picture of a girl who is experiencing true joy. I guess, I don't know, I don't know why, but whatever it is. So Vichik argued that there is a pattern in the Ramam. That if you look throughout the way the Ramam describes a mitzvah in the Kotaret, in the title, when it lists the mitzvot, versus the way it describes the, the mitzvah in the actual legal sections, in the actual book itself, you will find a distinction. In the book itself, in Mishnah Torah, when he's describing the laws of what you have to do, he focuses on the action. What is the action I have to do? When he's, when, he's when he's talking in the titles and describing the mitzvah more generally, before he gets to the actual specific legal obligations, he just says the mitzvah is X, Y, and Z, that's where he focuses on the experiential element. That's where he focuses on the cue. If you, want to, if you want to see it, if you look at the sources 9 and 10, the Rambam is another example. Source number 10, the Rambam says in the Mishnah Torah, the mitzvah is to daven, mitzvah to say, to say the words. In source number 9, when the Rambam is in, in the introduction describing the mitzvah, he doesn't say, he says, to serve God through prayer. So again, it's a subtle distinction. But in the book itself, when he's telling you the laws, he tells you the action you have to do. The action you have to do is to pray, say the words. But it doesn't capture the experiential element that is supposed to be there. The experiential element is to serve God through prayer, and that's what he captures in the Kotaret, that's what he captures in the, in the, um, in the introduction. And he's just listing all the mitzvot. So here too, Slavichik argue, the same thing is true with Tshuva. If you ask him, what is the action that I have to do to fulfill the mitzvah of tshuva? The answer is vidui, verbal confession. That is the one thing I have to do. What is the experience that's supposed to accompany that verbal expression? What is the experience that's supposed to accompany that statement? Tshuva. Pretty vague. We'll, we'll fill in that gap in a second. Let's look at look at verse number eleven. This is where this is where Rav Slavichik describes this. Um, this is where Rabbi Slavichik um, is where he resolves the contradiction in the Rabbah. It says, when one repents and turns away from his sin, he's under the duty to, to confess. Here, Maimonides is being consistent with his overall approach. But in the context of the laws themselves, he only deals with the object of repentance, with the deed, which is to say, I sinned. But in the heading, in defining the precept, he emphasizes the internalized experience that is the essence of repentance, the painstaking process and soul-searching which brings man to repent his sin before God. So here we have a, a connection. We have, a, we have two parts of tshuva. We have a verbal confession, which is the action, and we have the, the experience of tshuva, which he describes as painstaking and soul-searching. So when it comes to things like Simchas Yom Tov, enjoying Yom Tov, you understand the connection between having a good meal with your, your friends and family and experiencing joy. You understand the connection between sitting on the floor and feeling sad. But what is the connection that's here between stating I sinned and the process of tshuva, this painstaking struggle of repentance in front of God? So that, that is where the subjective element comes in. You can see this is where Vassalvechik is going to speak more subjectively and, um, and figure out and describe to us why confession is so important. Uh, we're going to skip source number 12 for a second, go to source number 13. Um, if you look at the third paragraph, source number 13, you've read Grace as follows. It says, but confession has still another dimension. Confession is the act that brings man acquittal. Confession is not merely a perfunctory verbalization of the set formula. But it's bound up in tribulations of the soul and pangs of the conscience. That shall be deemed a sacrifice. There are many things that man knows and thinks about which he does not dare bring to his lips. Man is stubborn by nature and builds fences within himself, sometimes refusing to acknowledge facts and denying harsh reality. Um, next page, the underlying part. Confession compels man in a terrible state of torment to admit facts as they really are, to give clear expression to the truth. This indeed is a sacrifice, a breaking of the will, a torturous negation of human nature. Both remorse and shame are involved in this process. 
So for Oslomichev, why is confession, seeding, I sinned, the, um, the action that is supposed to accompany the, the, uh, the real inner essence of tshuva? Because what is the inner essence of tshuva as described in this piece? Standing up to the truth, standing up to the truth of our own failures. And during the year, we're not doing tshuva, we could hide things. We, we don't have to think about our failures. We, we, we don't have to think about all the mistakes that we made. We go on living life in the way that we want to, steep down in our subconscious, and you might know we should be living better, but we don't have to see it. We don't have to stare it in the face. What you have to do in order to do tshuva, you have to see it. Say it. Not just say it, you have to mean it. God, I sinned. I failed. It brings all of that think all of those emotions, all of those feelings of failure that were there by relying dormant to the fore, you're staring at your failure in the face, it is a terrible state of torment, and that is the experience of tshuva that we're supposed to have. So Rapsalvechim in this level is very similar to Rabbi Yuna. It's very similar to the traditional approach of tshuva. All he's doing is showing that it's actually inherent in the halachot themselves on the Rambam. But yes, tshuva is painful, tshuva is hard, it's anguish-filled, it's, tor- it's tormenting. And Rosavichik says, you want to know how you know that? Just read the Rambam. There are two parts of tshuva. There is the action of confession, and there is the inner experience. What type of inner experience is confession, is verbalization supposed to engender? It's supposed to engender staring your failures in the face, being open with yourself, having a conversation with yourself about what you did. And ultimately, as Rambam says, um, your conversation has to be with God as well. The confession has to take place in front of God. You're supposed to imagine God in front of you. So in this level, Salvechik expresses a lot of continuity with the earlier Jewish thoughts. He just couches it or gets at it from halachic texts. Um, any, any comments or questions up until now? I apologize, that was a little bit technical and a little bit technical and possibly confusing, but um, this, this is the way Salvechik's philosophy goes. But there is another element of Rapsalvechik's philosophy of tshuva. Um, and this is that Rapsalvechik thought that just the same way that halacha at times could be extremely different and teach you something extremely different by you in a different way from regular secular society, particularly American society, in the second half of the 20th century, which is what was functioning, at times halacha actually expresses those very values that 20th century America stood upon, at least the noble ones. And if you, somebody in earlier Jewish philosophy may not have realized it, may not have noticed it, may not have highlighted it, but because we're living in America in the 20th century, and because we're focusing on the halachic sources themselves, and not on medieval philosophy, not on Aristotle, not on all these things which the earlier Jewish philosophers were focused on, we're just looking at the bare bones halacha, we can actually highlight certain things that are actually empowering, that are actually in line with the values of 20th century plus, 20th century, 20th century America. I want to see this inside somewhere. Dr. David Schatz was a student of Slavichik, he was a professor of philosophy in Columbia. He wrote, he wrote a, an article called The Framework for Ishalacha, a Framework for Lachman. And there he describes that Slavichik and Rav Cook were both faced with the same phenomenon in their communities, a lack of observance, apathy to tradition. Rav Cook, as we're going to see next week, the solution was mysticism. The solution was Kabbalah. The solution was teach people the inner spiritual essence of Judaism. They're going to flock back to tradition. This stuff wasn't taught before. It was kept secret. Now is the time to reveal it. We're going to see what that does in the treatment process. But Dr. Schatz points out that Rav Salvechik had the opposite approach. You want to inspire people? You want to bring people back into the fold? Teach them halacha. Teach them Jewish law. In and of itself, that is extremely inspirational if you actually study the text and know what it actually says without getting confused with all the medieval Aristotelian Jewish philosophy stuff or other things that, 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 that confuse it along the way. And you look at Dr. Schatz's quote, this our analysis carries an important implication concerning Rabbi Salvechik's general strategy in Ishalacha and Alachik Men. This philosophically inclined reader learns and when judiciously read, modern culture actually fortifies commitment. The very values which modern critics felt could be realized only by leaving the four L's of halacha could in fact be achieved by remaining squarely within them. If you want to, in halachic man, he doesn't say it in these terms, this is what Dr. Chess points out. But some argue, if you want to be authentic, you want to be creative, you want to be empowered, you want to change the world, all things which America, you know, 20th century Americans were into, think of Superman, 
Well, if you want to do all those things, study halakha, keep halakha, it will guide you to do all those things. Um, and it's almost like if you want to be the ultimate, if you want to ex express ultimate authenticity, authenticity, and you, have to, you want to have the ultimate autonomy, and you want to be the halakhic hero, you want to be a hero and stand up against society, against the evil society, learning halakha, keeping halakha is going to get you there. In Rav Salichik, perhaps nowhere is this seen, this, you know, this looking at things halakhically, but highlighting the empowering um, elements of the halakhic system, um, nowhere could have seen more than Shiva. In the book Halakhic Man, the second half of the book is called the Halakhic Man, his creative capacity. A Halakhic Man, somebody who's learning Halakha and keeping Halakha, is the ultimate creator. Yeah, counterintuitive. You would think you're very traditional, you're conservative. No. From a Salvation's worldview, you are the ultimate creator. Who is, what is the ultimate creation? Man. What is the ultimate creator then? Somebody who recreates themselves. Who is the ultimate person that recreates themselves? A Baal You're recreating yourself. You're recreating yourself when you engage in the tshuva process. And Rapsalvechik explicitly contrasts this model of tshuva, which we'll describe in a second, with the traditional Rabbeinu Yonah approach of tshuva. Look at verse number 15. This is the difference, and then we'll fill in the gaps. We'll fill in what the, mod, what the current model of tshuva is in Rapsalvechik. This here there comes to the fore the primary difference between the concepts of repentance and halacha, the concept of repentance held by homo religiosus, the average religious person, which he sort of quotes from earlier Jewish medieval texts. The latter, meaning the regular approach to tshuva, views repentance only from the perspective of atonement, only as a guard against punishment, as an empty regret which does not create anything, does not bring anything new. A deep melancholy afflicts his spirit. He mourns for the yesterdays that are irretrievably past, in the time that has long since sunk into the abyss of oblivion, the deeds that have vanished like shadows, facts he will never be able to change. Therefore, for the homo religiosus, for the average religious person, repentance is a wholly miraculous phenomenon, made possible by the endless grace of the Almighty. It's gone. You can't change the past. You're mourning a lost life, a lost day, a lost year. And therefore, what is the only thing you could hope for? God to swoop down and to cleanse your soul, and then you could pick up again. But you can't actually change anything. You need God to come in and give you grace. And Rabbi Yonah is explicit about this in Shari Tshuva, that, that Tshuva is a chesed, it's a divine kindness. You can't change the past. You can mourn over a lost past, then God comes down and forgives you. Next paragraph. But such is not the case with the halachic man. The man does not indulge in weeping and despair, does not lacerate his flesh or flail away at himself. He does not afflict himself with penitential rites and foregoes all mortifications of body and soul. The halachic man is engaged in self-creation, in creating a new eye. So halachic man is different than tshuva as described in the earlier process. Yes, there is an element of tshuva that's extremely painful. You have to mourn over the past. But you have to use that experience in a, and channel it in a creative way, as we'll see in a second. Um, I don't think we have time to go through, um, to go through the, um, to go through the, um, the, uh, the, whole, the whole analysis he has here. Again, he very beautifully builds this model of tshuva from halachic sources themselves. And he basically describes that there are two elements of tshuva. There's the element of tshuva, which is, which, is, uh, which, which is expressed through the vidoy, through the verbal declaration that I sin, the verbal confession. And that, as we discussed, is very past-focused. I sin, I am a failure, I lost, and it's very painful. The question is then, what do you do with it? And Rosalveshik describes how halacha gives you the tools to not just live in the past that is lost, and he says that the philosophers, Spinoza and Nietzsche, they made fun of the religious concept of repentance. Because what are you doing mourning over the past? It's gone. There's nothing you could do about it. Just live your life in the, live your life in the present and the future. And Lomsovichik says they're right to a degree. Tshuva can't just be past-focused. It also has to be future-focused. How could tshuva be future-focused? What does this mean? So if you look, if you skip down, to, to source number 19. It's the bottom, bottom of page 10. So then she describes that the halakhic system 
um, has a very different notion of time than the way we normally experience time or the way the philosophers describe time. The way he describes time based on Spinoza and Nietzsche, again, this is not, this is not just, uh, this is not the only perspective of time in the world of Western philosophy, is that again, the past is irretrievable. The future hasn't yet happened, I'm living in the present. Look at source number 19. Salvechik says, if you go, again, he builds this out of the halakha system, halakha is about the past, halakha is about the future, and that's not the way halakha views time. Halakha views time as a continuum. The past is still, it still exists. The future is something I can really taste. I can taste the days of Mashiach. I can taste what the current Pesach is going to taste like. I can taste the future Gaula the same way I can really mourn for the loss of the Beit HaMikdash and the palpable loss of the Divine Presence of 2,000 years ago. And that affects the way I view myself when I'm trying to change. Look at source number 19. He does not fight shadows of a dead past nor does he grapple with these that have faded, into, faded away into a distance. Similarly, his resolve is not some vacuous decision with regard to an obscure and distant future that has not yet arrived. There was a living past, there was a dead past. There's a future that is not, which has yet been created, and there is a future already in existence. What do you do if you want to do tshuva? Look at the next source, um, source number 20. The main principle of repentance is that the future dominates the past and reigns over it in an unbounded fashion. Sin, as the cause and beginning of a lengthy causal chain of destructive acts, can be transformed underneath the guiding hands of the future into a source of merit and good deeds, into love and fear of God. The cause is in the past, but the direction and development is determined by the future. What does he mean by this? If I said correctly what he means, is that let's say somebody did a sin. Let's say somebody just spent a year of their life uh, drinking. Again, I don't know the people. I don't know. I don't know the people here, but spent a full year of their life just getting drunk constantly, over and over and over again. Amazing. So they spent a year of their life doing that. You woke up after a year. Like, what am I doing? I am wasting my life. It may, it may be it may be good at the moment, but I'm wasting my broader life. If you're a Rabino Yona person, if you're the first approach to what we described last week, you feel horrible about yourself. You just wasted a year of your life. And you're, li- you're constantly reliving the fact that you wasted that year and you can't do anything about it. It's lost. It's gone. You, the best you could do is hope for God to cleanse you now, and then you can, then you, then you can go, go ahead and live a productive life in the future. For Salvation, that's not enough. That's not creating a new self. That is, that is abandoning the past and starting, and, and starting fresh. Recreating yourself means using that past for a positive future. Yes, right now, I am wallowing in my alcohol. Right now, I am wallowing in the sense that I just wasted a full year of my life. The question is not, how can, should I burn that, cut that off, and then start fresh? The question is, I'm in this situation now. How can I make decisions now about the future that are going to reorient that past and include that past in a glorious and positive and productive future? It's not about mourning the past and cutting, off, cutting yourself off from the past and saying there's nothing I can do about it. God has to swoop down and give me grace and forgive me with divine kindness. And now I'm going to start you know, going to show every day and diving, et cetera, et cetera. No, you have to face the past. You have to understand you did certain things and that you did certain things in the past year. And you wasted it. And it's painful to stand up to that and to realize that. But now your mission is to recreate the past. How do you recreate the past? by choosing a future that is going to put the past in a different context. Maybe you could join a, a, a group that helps people that are doing that. Maybe because you live life with people that are suffering from, that are, that are, that are, that are types of people that, 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 suffer from, that suffer from alcohol abuse, that makes you more sensitive to people in the future in all sorts of ways. Whatever it is, you have the ability to recreate the past, not to recreate the facts, the facts are the facts recreate the meaning of the past, the orientation of the past, by making decisions in the present about the future. Why? Because Halakha views all of your life as a continuum. The past is still exists. The future, is, the future exists in some way. If I view myself in the future as being an extremely sensitive person because of my past, that is the ultimate shufa. But that doesn't just mean I'm cutting myself off from my past, I'm recreating my past, I'm crea- recreating something which, for all intents and purposes, and all other systems of life, perhaps, is completely lost. The past, it's a decision, I made it, it's gone. I can't do anything about it. So we should argue that no. 
Halakha tells me I have the ability to change my past, not the facts, but the context, the meaning, the orientation, as long as I use that in a positive way in the future. And therefore, the halakhic man, when he engages in tshuva, does it as the ultimate creator. It's not that you're, yes, it's painful, but it's not the suffering and mourning that we saw last week. The fact that you're paralyzed, you can't do anything about your life, and you're waiting for divine grace. No, that's homo religiosis. That's the average religious person. Halakhic sources tell me that I actually have the ability to change the past by reorienting myself for the future. Um, look, if you look at source 21, which is the last, last quote from Halakhic Men, it says, to be sure, each cause gives rise to a new causal sequence. I drank for a year, I wasted a year, I'm in a certain spot. I caused myself to be in a certain situation. But this sequence can oftentimes head in various directions. It stands at a crossroads and ponders whither. If man so desires, it will travel in the direction of eternity. The past will heed his word and attach itself to him. The causes of the past will submit to his directive. The idea of the reign of the future over the past is no doubt highly, highly paradoxical, but it is no less true for all of that. And I'll make describe that some of the best decisions made globally by different societies was based on reorienting past decisions um, that were horrible mistakes. It doesn't go into so much detail, but it says, but that, but that, that is the last sentence, last sentence in the chapter. So for Salvation, tshuva, as painful and as struggling as it is, is a highly empowering process. You're not paralyzed, you're not mourning, you are in charge. You have the ability not just to determine the course of your future, but also to determine the meaning of your past. And if you just if you look at the last source, we're not, not going to read it inside, but Dr. Reynolds, one of, one of, Dr. Daniel Reynolds, one of, one of my professors at, at Revel, um, had an, has an article about Rabsolvechik uh, on Chuva as a response to Nietzsche, with, uh, a German philosopher. And he basically describes that Nietzsche critiqued religion the very similar way that Rabsolvechik did. Nietzsche said religion is all about, you know, cutting yourself off from the world and mourning and, and living a life of mourning and paralysis and waiting for God to do things. And Reynolds' point is that, no, Salvatic actually argued that that's not true, not because of some modern crazy reread of the religious tradition, it's actually all there in the halachic sources themselves, in the bread and butter, in the legal details of the halachic system. And now they were in the 20th century, and we have the ability to not be influenced by Aristotle, not be influenced by, you know, by, 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 by Christianity, not be influenced by other, re, other religious or philosophical systems that bore heavily down on Jewish philosophers throughout the ages, we have the ability to actually read Halakhic sources for what they are and realize they're very empowering. They tell you to, to create yourself. They tell you to be authentic. They tell you to be autonomous. And that is something that, is, that was highly resonant in Rosalvechik's teachings to his 20th century students. And he himself recognized and was explicit about the fact that it's a change from the earlier models of repentance that we discussed, that we discussed last class. So just to summarize, Rosalvechik um, thinks that wants you to develop a Jewish philosophy out of the details of Allah, huh? and it gives him a continuity and rupture with the earlier, with the earlier sources. Continuity in the sense that he thinks that suffering and sacrifice is there in the halakhic sources themselves, but at the same time, it doesn't stop there. That is, that, that engenders you. You have to take those feelings and run with them and sort of lift yourself, lift yourself out of them, but use them and channel them to create a new future for yourself that is going to give a different meaning to your past decisions. Um, any, comment, any comments or questions before we go on? before we conclude. Amazing. So thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, our, our ability to learn together. Thank you again to Sarah. And God willing, next week, we'll look at Ruf Cook, um, an older contemporary of Salvechik, and how he used Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism, to also to even more radically reorient Shuba for the 20th century. Thank you so, so much. Great. Thank you, um, Rabbi Dr. Bronstein. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Um, we are going to continue our Elul journey of programming tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. with the second part of a three-part series by Sarah Zager. 
through a close reading of the fourth chapter of the Rambam's Hilchot Teshuvah, we will explore what kinds of behaviors and situations make Teshuvah impossible. And we will see that for the Rambam, Teshuvah requires a community that is both supportive and willing to give moral rebuke. If you haven't yet registered, you can find the Zoom links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again, Rabbi Dr. Bronstein, for this opportunity and everyone who attended. And we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you for a wonderful share. Thank you. Thank you so much.